Hello, and welcome to the CEO Blind Spots Show, where leaders reveal their blind spots and best practices. I'm your host, Beria Camps, and today's guest is Dr. Alan Barnard, who is the CEO of Goldrat Research Labs, a company who partners with industry-leading organizations around the world to make better, faster decisions when it really matters. And they do this by developing the most innovative and easy-to-use decision-making apps. Welcome to the show, Dr. Barnard. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, as I was looking at your background, you've had so many successes at Microsoft. Apparently, their CTO described the results you provided as nothing short of remarkable because you had a groundbreaking system that redesigned the company's supply chain and saved Microsoft a quarter of a billion dollars. And then you've got three award-winning apps that help in the decision-making process for organizations. And uh, you're known as the decision scientist and theory of constraint expert. So why do you think you've succeeded so well in all these areas? Well, I think the thing that links everything together is on the one side, I'm a decision scientist. And on the other side, I'm an expert in theory of constraints. So how these two things related is simply our limited attention is the ultimate constraint. We always will have more things that demand our attention, not just as CEOs, but as human beings, than what we have available attention. So what and who we allocate our scarcest and most precious resource makes all the difference. So that's essentially what my research lab does, is we focus on trying to understand why good people make and often repeat bad decisions. And that essentially means that they are focusing their limited attention on the wrong things, on the wrong people, on the wrong options. So that's kind of how everything ties together. You mentioned the, the case with Microsoft. The reality is that when we have limiting assumptions as CEOs, those limiting assumptions become the constraint to our business growth. Mm. And one of the most devastating limiting assumptions is thinking that we are doing the best that we can considering. Now, you might say, well, considering what? These are the reasons we give ourselves for thinking and assuming that we're doing the best that we can, considering the economy, considering the hand that I was dealt with when I took over CEOs, all the past mistakes that have been made, et cetera. So as a CEO to overcome that blind spot, you have to get into the mode of constantly doing experiments to challenge that assumption and allowing your team to challenge that assumption of we're doing the best that we can in a safe way. Because remember, designing an experiment that will make people feel like they're going to be exposed and be blamed or shamed for being able to do better, they're never going to agree to it. So you have to think about how to design these small experiments to constantly challenge your own and your team assumptions of whether we are doing the best that we can. And if not, how much better could we do and how best to do it? And that's essentially what my research lab does is we, we partner with, with organizations and leadership teams to answer those questions. Are we doing the best that we can? If not, how much better can we do with what we've got? Our existing products, our existing people, our existing customers. And then what is the best way of doing not just a little bit, but sometimes much, much better. And that's essentially what happened with Microsoft. They had an assumption that you know, they have the best technology, they can afford to appoint the best people. Are they doing the best that they can? And we looked at the level of shortages and surpluses of the physical products that they sell, like keyboards, smartphones, etc. And there was a substantial amount of shortages 
at the retail level that would cause people to not be able to buy because there's no stock available. But there was also a substantial amount of surpluses, which has two negative consequences. It consumes your working capital if you're carrying too much inventory. Uh, it also consumes space and, and cash that you could have used to, to sell other products. So it has this sort of double whammy effect. And we were able to design a simulation model of their whole supply chain that could help us to test certain assumptions. And one of the key assumptions was you know, pushing as much inventory to the to the retail is the best way of making sure that customers will always find what they're looking for. But of course, if you're doing that based on inaccurate forecast, you're always going to have too little or too much. And we, we developed a new process. And as you mentioned, the results were quite outstanding. In the first year, they got their inventories down by over a quarter of a billion dollars. And at the same time, increased sales by a few hundred million dollars by preventing stockouts. So I think in, in essence, as a summary, you know, the limiting assumptions of the CEO becomes the constraint to their business growth. And if the CEO believes that they're doing the best that they can, they will create an environment where everybody adopts that assumption. We're doing the best that we can considering, and they won't be open to doing simple experiments to help them to test, are we really doing the best that we can? Yes. Yeah, so you brought up earlier also that your systems help people identify why good people make bad decisions. And then you just now mentioned, you know, the constraint of the CEOs, the constraint of the organization. But as a CEO yourself, how have you gotten to be open to looking at your own constraints? I think number one is creating that culture of ongoing improvement and making it safe for people to try experiments. And of course, safe is both from the business perspective. You don't want people to do experiments that can really, really harm the business. Um, but at the same time, it should be, even if it doesn't harm the business, it shouldn't harm their own reputation and how they, they look at themselves and how other people look at themselves. So one of the key strategies that I've employed in my own company, and as well as what we encourage our clients to do, is to move away from managing by objective, mm which is essentially holding people accountable for the result, getting them to sign off, you know, on the forecast, uh, mm -hmm. as if that will somehow improve the certainty at which we're going to hit the number. But rather than managing by objective, holding people accountable for the result is holding them accountable for following the process, mm. which means that we are going to together agree what is the process that we're going to follow that will have the highest possibility of meeting all the objectives, allowing us to be more effective, more efficient, et cetera. But then measuring people on the compliance to that process. This is something that we very seldom see in organizations. If you can't trust that people are complying to the best practices that you've agreed upon, you will never know whether the outcome that you are getting, is it because the process is good or bad, or is it because people were not following the process? And that to me is a critical thing in terms of creating stability and reliability, is holding people accountable on complying with the process so that we know for a fact that if we are getting that result, it is as a direct result of the process. Mm. And if people feel pressure to not follow the process, then make it safe for them to raise their hand and say, I, I feel pressure now to do something that's against the process. It could be because I just intuitively feel it's the wrong thing to do, or I know it's the right thing to do, but my metric 
you know, the way that you are measuring me on my quarterly results are causing me to take an action that I know is bad for the system, but it's the only way of meeting my metric. And that's kind of when we see people behaving, parts behaving in ways that's not good for the system. It normally has two causes. The one is that it's the wrong metric. You, you've you created metrics that are driving short-term or local optima performance at the expense of global optima performance, or the process that is required for the system to get the best result is very counter-instinctful. It's like a simple example would be multitasking. You know, we all multitask. It feels so intuitive to keep on saying yes and keep on trying to do more things. But we know every time we take on another thing, we get less done. It takes us much more time to get everything else done and we make more mistakes. But it's so instinctful to multitask, to agree to say yes. And that to me is the essence of it, is you have to create safe environments where people will raise their objections and tell us. But it's not your job to break the rules. Hmm. Our job is to follow the rules so that we know whether the process is working or not working. Well, I'm so glad you chose to share this tip. And I am curious, though, let's say you have this process and it's a good one that's the right metrics, but, you know, the world is changing so fast. How do you deal with time constraints? Like what if there's 10 other things that all of a sudden are urgent maybe not important, but urgent. What do you recommend in that scenario where people might feel pressured to skip the process in order to get the urgent handled? Right. And I think it's related to another core assumption that not just CEOs have, but that we all sometimes suffer from is we think that more is better. Mm. So what we do is we kind of buffer ourselves against failure rather than buffering for success. So let me explain what I mean by that. I call it 10x rather than 10%. So if you think about trying to achieve a target of 100, right, and you you think about 10%, that means I have to find 10 things to make up that 100, right? Mm-hmm. And the more things that I can find that's 10, the more safe I feel that I'm going to make up the 100. But that creates a huge long to-do list, and it makes it extremely difficult to figure out which is the best one to to go. If if all of them can contribute 2% or 5% or 10%, how do I prioritize? 10x is a completely different mindset. It says rather than looking for 10 things that can make up the 100, can I find one thing that even if we are partially successful in achieving that, the opportunity is worth 200 or 300 or 400. So even if we are only 50% successful or 20% successful, I can still get most of the 100 from this one thing. And I think that's how to solve the time constraint problem. We have a time constraint because there's way too many things that are demanding our attention. Why are there way too many things that are demanding our attention? Because we think more is better. The more things we are working on, the safer we will be, the more reliable we will be to meet our objectives. And the exact opposite is true. The more things you have on your plate, the less you'll get done, the longer everything takes, the more mistakes that you'll make. So that idea of focusing on 10x, look for those few things that will give you the 10x. And there's very few things that can achieve 10x improvement in any field, whether you're for profit or for purpose, but they are always out there. And it's encouraging yourself as the CEO, but also encouraging every level in your management team to keep looking for those 10x opportunities. And it's that mindset that will help people look for those big opportunities, which means my to-do list will will be very small because there's very seldom many opportunities to achieve 10x. And that solves the time constraint problem. 
Yeah. Wow. So it, it just sounds like you know about all these uh, constraints that are out there and you yourself have implemented great processes and metrics. And it's not just Microsoft, right? You've also helped Cargill and Nike and ABB and Cisco, SAP, Intel, et cetera, et cetera. So with your own team, did you ever struggle in leading them or did you never have a blind spot? Of course. Uh, I mean, my blind spot is I'm optimistic. I see the best in people, right? And that mm. makes us blind to <laughs> think about the worst case scenario or to, to look for those red flags early on. You know, I had the privilege of meeting Tony Shi many, many years ago, the legendary founder who tragically passed away recently of Zappos. And he showed me how much attention they pay when they're hiring somebody. So that general advice of hire slow, fire fast, I think is a really good technique to follow. So when it comes to, to hiring people, I mentioned my blind spot is, you know, I see the good in everybody. And sometimes that can cloud us from paying attention to red flags. I hired a guy that was incredibly bright, one of the best co-developers I'd ever met in my life. But he's often treated people in a very, very disrespectful way. And, you know, I absolutely believed that I was going to be able to, to buffer the system against this. But obviously, I can't be everywhere and all at once. And and this kept on happening and I kept on getting feedback from my team about, you know, how this person was treating them and it was making the environment extremely uncomfortable. And I realized, well, I knew this right from the beginning. I really should never have hired this guy. And I had the discussion with him. I gave him the direct feedback and asked him to go. But that's an example of, you know, my blind spot. And I'm sure many, many CEOs out there, as we see the positive things in people, but that often makes us blind to those red flags that you could have taken action much, much earlier. And if you don't, you, you suffer the consequences. Yeah. So what do you do now then? Well, I think the, the best way is that you acknowledge that you have blind spots and you involve people in the interview process that don't have those blind spots, maybe on the other extreme where they see the negative and everything, you know, that's a good counterbalance. And that's what I do now is I involve as many people in my team as possible when we are making new hires. I open it up to my team to say, are we ready to bring this person into our team? Yes or no. And everybody gets a fair say to it. Well, I'm sure a lot of leaders can relate to that. And then you have been through many crises in life. What tip or two do you have for others on how to make it through? Absolutely. I, I think what tends to happen is we go into a crisis and then we start challenging everything and say, how do I get out of the crisis? And it often means breaking the rule. But then what happens when the crisis is over is we go back to the old rule. And one of the earliest examples I have in this was I was a, a COO of a large manufacturing company. And during a period of time, we had a major crisis where a lot of our production capacity was taken out and we just simply couldn't meet the demand. And when a customer would phone in and they would order a thousand, our first question would be, how much do you really, really need? Okay, you need a thousand over what period? Is it okay if we ship you a hundred over the next 10 weeks or 200 per week for the next five weeks. And I often come back and say, not only it's okay, I'd actually prefer it that way. But guess what happens if the crisis is over? They phone in an order of a thousand and you say, okay, you accept the order, not realizing that if they only need 200, you're actually now wasting 80% of your capacity producing something that's not needed or at least not needed now. And I think that is my, my constant reminder to myself Whenever you face a crisis, it's very likely that you're going to have to break some rules. Go and look which rules that you break after the crisis. 
and ask yourself, if I constantly adopt this new rule, could it actually have prevented the, the crisis or the extent of the crisis in the first place? So we should always be asking people, how much do you really need? How much can I supply you now so that we don't overproduce and that they don't overpurchase? Well, then if I'm an entrepreneur and I feel like everything is a crisis and people are following a process, but if everything is a crisis, it sounds like people would break the rules all the time. But I think what you're saying is there might be a time or two when you on purpose would break the process and then reevaluate if you go back to the old process or develop a new process. Is that right? Yeah, and I think just thank you for clarifying that. I started off by saying I think one of the biggest mistakes is we manage by objective. We hold people accountable for the result rather than what we should do, which is hold them accountable for complying to the process. When somebody believes that they shouldn't be following the process, they should raise that, provide their explanation, propose a, a short experiment of what can we do to test a different rule, to test a new process. They shouldn't be holding that on themselves. They should say that. I am currently in a situation where the process or the measurement is putting pressure on me to do one thing. I think the best thing for the business is to do another thing and get approval to try that out and see what the consequences are. You just don't want people to you know, f follow whatever they think is best. And a way of doing this more proactively is you use that 10x rule to say, how can we do this? 10 times faster. During this last COVID crisis, I, I sat on an advisory board and I needed to get communication out to the people in this crisis within a day, something that normally takes them weeks and weeks to prepare for. And they managed to get it done in about two days. And, you know, then the crisis is over and guess what happens? Their normal communication goes back to the process that requires, you know, four weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks to communicate simple messages. And we asked them, what was the process? What was the rules that you had to break to get it done in one or two days? Why is that not the process? And that allowed them now to create a communication process that can get any message out to 60 different countries in multiple language or within a day or two. But wow. it has to be part of the design. It's to say either there's a real crisis that happened. We, we paid attention to what rules we had to break and we check why can't we always use these rules? The second one is to create these ambitious targets for people, right? How can we do it 10x faster or 10x more? What rules would you have to break? What parts of the process would you have to change? And how can we go and design that process, test it in a very low risk, low cost way, and then check the, oh my goodness, this can make all the difference. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing and helping entrepreneurs make better decisions. I know that if they go to harmonyapps.com, they can actually find and test some of these apps that you've developed to help people make better, faster decisions. So thank you again for sharing your wisdom, uh, your best practices, and even being willing to share some of your blind spots. Thank you so much for the invitation.